wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I'll just come up sometime, see me. in your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. The stuff uh, that dreams are made of. Hey everybody, Kirk here. I uh, just want to say before we start the episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter. And Facebook. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure to leave us a rating, a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear your feedback and you can find us on any social media by searching Silver Screen Time Machine. We appreciate your feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Hello and welcome to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk's classic film review. And today we have a special guest because our friend Kirk cannot be with us this evening. So we have Deanne, who's very knowledgeable about classic film. Hello, Deanne. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Wendy? Oh, great. I'm so excited about our second episode. Today, we allowed our guest Deanne to pick the film. I'm really excited about the film she picked. So we're going to go back in our time machine and we're going to go to when and what. 1957, and we're going to be talking about Sweet Smell of Success. Awesome. I'm so excited. This film is really atmospheric. That's that's the thing that I noticed the most about it. It's a film noir, obviously, but you've really got the atmospheric type film noir. This is exactly the type of film I really enjoy because there's a lot of hitting meaning to me in, in this film. You find that as well? Lots and lots of hidden meaning, lots of layers. You can watch it over and over again and see Still something yes, something different every time. This is produced by Burt Lancaster's production team, officially called Hecht Hill and Lancaster. They're a partnership, and they produce quite a lot of films, strangely enough, starring Burt Lancaster. <laughs> I was just going to say <laughs> that when I took a look at their list of films that they'd put out to see what they were because I wasn't familiar I did happen to see that, yes, the, the good <laughs> string of Burt Lancaster movies throughout the 50s. Yeah. yeah. And for me, I will confess to not being the biggest fan of Burt Lancaster, but I feel that he's a hit or miss type of actor. I feel in some films he's really, really good, film noirs and westerns. Uh, I don't think he does quite as well in dramatic roles. Another production that was done by Hecht Hill and Lancaster was Separate Tables, which is a really good film. And I thought he, he felt a little miscast in that particular film, especially starring alongside Wendy Hillier. But in this particular film, I think this is a, a wonderful role for him. I think it's very suited to Burt Lancaster's style. Um, and I, I think he does a really good job in this. He, in film noir, is almost always like you cannot miss Right. It's just the perfect uh, genre for him. Yes, he has kind of that almost pouty, (laughs) tormented type look. You know, he's just perfect for film noir. And really good in this particular film. He, He plays a very, very awful guy. And he plays him without any redeeming qualities to this guy. He's just cut and dry, mean and horrible all around. Yeah, I'm sitting here trying to think 
of any redeeming quality. Yeah. You can't even say he has a great love for his sister because I don't even think that he does. I think it's more of a control factor. I agree. I think he's obsessed with his mm. sister. It doesn't seem like a healthy relationship in any way, shape, or form, at least coming from his end. No. I guess we should say that this movie is based on a book written by Ernest Lehman? Lehman? I believe it's Lehman. Yeah, see, okay. I looked it up last night. Yeah, listeners to my podcast are going to have to forgive me because I will, throughout the course of the entire podcast series, mispronounce everybody's name. So I do apologize in advance. I never know how to pronounce names. So anyhow, Ernest, well, I'll call him Ernest. There, there you go. <laughs> Safe. Our friend Ernest, he wrote this book. He originally tried to get this published. They didn't like the title. They didn't like the word smell in the title. So he had to publish it under a different name. He published a novella. And then they then turned it into a book which he was allowed to retain the original name. This book was bought by Burt Lancaster's production company. And they hired him to come and write the screenplay. So he mostly wrote the screenplay, but then he became ill. When he became ill, they brought in Clifford Odets. Yeah, and my understanding, too, is that Clifford Odets was brought in also to uh, kind of punch up the dialogue mm. and that that's the primary contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I read that they had thought that Clifford Odets was going to work two to three weeks on the screenplay, and he just basically spent four months doing it. Yeah. And actually re almost rewrote all the dialogue. And it was to the point where they're trying to be in production, they're trying to film scenes, and he's actually handing them script pages, and they're filming right after he hands them the script page. Yeah, I had read the same thing. <laughs> Craziness. <laughs> yeah, a, li a little bit difficult, I would think, for the actors, but apparently they got through. And this may have also been one of the reasons this contributed to this film going severely over budget. I think the budget was something in the lines of 600000 or 400000 It wound up being $2.6 Yeah, that's pretty hefty yeah, for so. a movie of that time. <laughs> the other reason, supposedly, the director. Let's talk about the director, Alexander <laughs> McKendrick. He's not a director that we're very familiar with. It's not a name that just jumps out and you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. His, his main claim to fame before this was, was some movies for the Ealing mm. Studios in Britain, mm -hmm. uh, The Lady Killers, one of them, also The Man in the White Suit. Yep. Those were his big films. He actually started out as a commercial illustrator and then an animator before he went into feature films. And then, as you said, after the Ealing Studios went under, he had to go to America. He actually is American, spent most of his life in Scotland. His parents were Scottish. And he came to America, and he got all sorts of offers from different studios. But he wanted to make George Bernard Shaw's The Devil's Disciple, and Burt Lancaster promised him to make that. And so he signed with Hecht Hill and Lancaster. And he wanted to start work on that. And Burt Lancaster was pretty much, no, we're going to save that one. We want you to do the sweet smell of success. So he was kind of forced into starting with this one. And they said one of the things that was the problem with him is that he was a perfectionist, which a lot of directors are. But, of course, he didn't have the big name to go along with being a perfectionist, like, for example, David Lean. So it wasn't quite as acceptable. He got through this film, but he then went on to do The Devil's Disciple, and they fired him, didn't mm. let him complete it because he was taking too long. They called him a perfectionist. And then the same thing happened. He started in, as a director of The Grunts and Navarone. Same thing happened there. So it was just something that would continue to follow him. And he didn't wind up making a lot of movies. So I think that kind of hurt him. 
No, I was looking to see what he had done after Not Sweet much. Smell of Success, and it's it's uh yeah, it's pretty sparse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He had yeah, it's unfortunate because obviously this film very well done. Now, I can only imagine the guys like trying to film this <laughs> a, a movie, and you're getting script pages day of. Right. And right. apparently he was terrified of Burt Lancaster because Burt Lancaster had this reputation for being mean to directors and firing directors on a whim. So he was apparently terrified the entire time. But hey, I mean, <laughs> if if you just make this one movie, right, right, you can retire after that. As far as I'm concerned, maybe not on the money you make, <laughs> but yeah. but certainly on. Uh, knowing that you've put out a, a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and my question to you, Deanne, mm-hmm. is why was this not nominated for any Academy Awards? It's unbelievable to me. I can think of three definite categories that I would have... It's hard for me to understand, too. My first gut instinct would be to say something like the, the 50s movies maybe were a little more escapist. I'm thinking of some of the musicals and some of the big Santa productions. But then I looked at 1957, and I looked at the movies that were nominated for Best Picture. And it seems like it would be right in that company. There's 12 Angry Men. Right. Uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Which won all the awards, basically. It was the one that yeah. won. Witness for the Prosecution, also Sayonara and Peyton Place. And I think in that group, those are all some pretty serious, dark, complicated films. And so I can't even make that guess that this was just something that drove audiences away because they wanted something more escapist. Well, I think part of the problem might have been that it did terrible at the box office. For whatever reason, it did very badly at the box office. I think a lot of people wanted to see Tony Curtis in a regular Tony Curtis role. They didn't want to see Tony Curtis playing a slimy, skeezy uh, dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it helps that most of the characters, and certainly the main characters of the film, are not sympathetic. Well, and that's the thing, and I'm glad you said that, because I was thinking as I was watching this movie and afterwards, because this is a movie that you think about afterwards, you don't just forget it immediately, it kind of sticks with you, but is any character in the film happy? I don't think so. No. Everybody's unhappy. Every Every, character. (laughs) They're in various states of unhappiness, for sure, I would say. I can't say anything about the ending. No, you could we maybe definitely make different conclusions from the ending, but certainly throughout the film, no, I can't. I can't think of anybody that doesn't have a certain uh, layer of, of sadness and cynicism. Yeah, it's about, just everybody's yeah. in this. We have to do what we have to do. Life, trying just to get by, just to get through, uh, doing what they have to do to get by, even if it's not morally right. I'm thinking specifically about. Rita, the cigarette girl, and what she's kind of forced to do to get along, and it's rough. Everybody seems to have a very rough life, and personally, as far as Academy Awards, I would have, if it was up to me, I don't see how you don't nominate the cinematographer on this film, which is James Wong Howe, who is an Oscar award-winning cinematographer. He's won two. He actually did HUD, and he did The Rose Tattoo. Both of them, he won an Academy Award for Cinematography. Both of those Academy Awards for Cinematography, black and white. So the year 1957, it was Bridge on the River Kwai, Jack Hildyard, who won for Best Cinematography. And you know me, Deanne, I'm a big David Lean <laughs> fan. I love his visuals, but and I have nothing against Jack Hilliard. I think he's a very good cinematographer, but to me, he's not Freddie Young which is uh, David Lean's usual cinematographer. Bridge on the River Kwai is great. The visuals are not Lawrence of Arabia visuals to me. 
and quite frankly, I would have given it to James Wong Howe for this particular film. He did such a great job of just capturing this very dark atmosphere, this dark, gritty New York, jazzy atmosphere. And the cinematography in this film is almost like a character. Yes. This film is not the same, I think, without this dark, severe, black and white photography, lots of low angles. Low angles, yeah. Yeah, low angles, looking at those buildings that are just towering over you, and also, at times, the characters, J.J. Hunsucker towering over people. It's such an important part of the film. Yeah, they filmed him low a lot, uh, Burt Lancaster, to try to give him this very imposing figure, and they actually also, I don't know if you've read this, they put Vaseline on his glasses, so he would have a more menacing look. He'd have this sort of fixed stare. And they also wanted the light to hit his glasses so shadows appeared on his face to give him an even more evil look, I guess. So it's a lot of really great camera work. James Wong Howe is a prolific cinematographer. He's, he started in the silent era thir- all through the 30s and 40s. He did lots of films, some of them, just to mention a couple, King's Row, The Thin Man, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Lots of different kind of films. He did hit a little snag in the mid to late 40s when they had the House Un-American Committee hearings. He was thought to be perhaps a communist, which he wasn't, but he was thought to be one. So he got, I think, a little bit gray listed at that time. And he had a hard time anyway, because when he started out, especially during World War II, because he was Asian, he was actually Chinese, but people had this very bad idea of Japanese people at the time because of the war. And he actually used to have to wear a button that said, Mm -hmm. I am Chinese, so that people didn't think he was Japanese. And his friend James Cagney, his good friends with James Cagney, would also wear the button to support him. (laughs) So I thought that was a really interesting story. Yeah, love that. <laughs> I think it's absolutely amazing, though, that this is a career that starts in the, the 20s. Silence, yeah. yeah, in the silent films and up into the 60s with Funny Lady. The longevity there is just amazing. Well, the reason being because he's an amazing cinematographer and somebody that you don't hear his name thrown around a lot, despite how, if you ever look at his IMDb page, how many films he did and how many amazing films he did. It's just not a name you hear a lot when you talk about different cinematographers. But a name I think you do hear a lot when you're talking about different production people is Elmer Bernstein. Yes. And Elmer Bernstein did the score on this film, which this score is gorgeous. It fits the film perfectly. It's very, very jazzy. I think New York State of Mind, Frank Sinatra jazzy type when I see this film. And another thing I really like that Elmer Bernstein did is, especially when he's with Tony Curtis, when Tony Curtis is doing things, you get this very fast-paced, frantic type music that almost conveys his anxiety and his racing around. Uh, And I feel like he does a really good job with the music conveying the state of mind of the character. That's a really good point. The way that the music does, as you said, it conveys that state of anxiety and sort of leaves you as a viewer un- a Feeling little bit unsettled. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah you feel anxious yourself. It's, it's very punchy music and mm-hmm. it's very effective. And I also thought it was interesting. Now, I wish I knew more about them. This is a little project for me, but they, the movie also featured the Chico Harpo Quintet. Mm-hmm. Correct. Did you have any information on them? Well, I just read that they had to vet them for a long period of time because they were fearful of Walter Winchell coming and getting them. We should say the character of J.J. Hunzinger is based on real-life newspaper gossip columnist Walter Winchell, and they didn't want to give him any reason to come and attack the film, so they 
I guess they were worried that for some reason they might do drugs. I, I'm not really sure why. Hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no doubt a factor. In fact, I read about Winchell going to see the film. Yeah. And he wasn't a fan. Wasn't a fan. <laughs> would have been happy to have seen the negatives destroyed. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So back to Elmer Bernstein, not related to Leonard Bernstein and not to be confused with Leonard Bernstein, who's also a great score writer, but some of the films he scored, and I don't know, I think this is one of the greatest Western scores ever is The Magnificent Seven. Absolutely. And he did The Great Escape, he did True Grit, and he's even done modern films such as Ghostbusters and, oddly enough, The Wild Wild West. <laughs> now I want to listen to that score again. Wild Wild West. <laughs> again, not nominated for an Oscar. That would have been another one. I would have thought, yeah, you got to give him a nomination. If I was going to nominate Oscars in this particular film, I would have nominated the cinematographer. I would have nominated the screenplay. The music, yes, too, but the screenplay. Let's talk a little bit about the dialogue in this film. It's very... Very stylized. Yes. It's the way that I personally wish I talked all the yeah. time. It's very <laughs> smart, smart dialogue. Very smart. Even when they're saying really biting things to each other, I can't help but appreciate the clever way they said it. Yes. And he says a lot of things that maybe mean something else other than what he says. It's like everything J.J. Hunsinger said has an insult in it. No matter <laughs> what he's saying, there's an insult somewhere in there. And you can pick up, and the people he's speaking to also pick up all the insults he's putting down without saying them directly. He's indirectly saying insults to people. Yeah, I think sometimes even multiple insults with the same line. Yeah. They just, there's so many different shades of meaning. And he just shreds people, basically. He's mean. He's a mean jerk. And one of my favorite lines in this film, I think, is when he tells Sidney Falco, which is Tony Curtis's character, you're dead, get buried. My personal favorite is your cookie full of arsenic. Yeah. The, but yeah. they are both stellar, yeah. stellar nasty lines from jj that's in the 100 top quotes american as it should be unforgettable (laughs) i guess we should talk a little bit about the plot and the acting i would have nominated tony curtis i agree i don't think he'd had opportunity prior to this to really show the depth and the variety of what he could do right and so this was this an amazing role for him this was against type a departure and he does a great job of being this sort of really charming but smarmy guy. The only person I can think comparable that's good at doing this is George Sanders. Yes. (laughs) George Sanders I'm very fond of, and he is smarmy. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I could have seen him doing this role as well, but I think Tony Curtis does it beautifully. You can really feel, like I said, again, you feel his anxiety. You feel his desperation. I think desperation is the real word for him. He's very desperate. He plays Sidney Falco. He is a publicist. Publicist, press agent. I Mm -hmm. I think I've seen them sort of used interchangeably. So his job basically is to try to get newspaper columnists such as J.J. Hunsinger to write stuff about his clients so that they get some publicity and hopefully helps them. That's his job. So he has to basically go around kowtowing to all these newspaper columnists. And J.J. Hunsinger in this movie, played by Burt Lancaster, is the top number one guy in all of New York, as far as newspaper columnists goes, at least according to this film. 
he makes or breaks you. Exactly. So everybody's desperate to get in his favor. And J.J. Hunsinger, he made this deal with Sidney Falco. He wanted Sidney to somehow break up a relationship with his sister and the lead singer of this band. The Chico Harper yeah. Quintet. So it, I believe they're actually called that in the movie. Yes, I believe yeah. so. The lead singer, yeah. Steve Dallas, yeah. that's the character. And the sister's name is Susan Hunsinger. Sidney is supposed to break these two up. He doesn't want them being involved. You get the impression that he doesn't want his sister involved with anybody. I don't think so. I, yeah, I don't know that it's anything, at least at the beginning, anything personal ag against no. uh, poor Steve. It's just, yeah, he, he needs to mm -hmm. be the dominant figure in her life. Yes, you almost, you almost wonder if there's some underlying incestual thing going on there. There is definitely vibe there. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I just, He's I thought, so creepy the way he <laughs> speaks to her. Yes, and then even... When you look at his desk in, in his office at one point, and he has a, a picture of her, a like often picture. where you would see a huge picture of maybe a, a wife, wife mm. a kid, there's this big portrait of her, and it's very odd. And he's always calling her dear in this hideously patronizing way. It's just, oh, it's cringeworthy to the way he speaks to her. It just gives you a really uncomfortable feeling that, yeah, something is not right, and you feel like, Susan, the sister, is who is played by Susan Harrison. I feel like Susan is really desperately trying to get herself away from him, and that's why she's trying to find a man. And this fellow that she's found, Steve Dallas, who's played by Martin Milner, is actually the complete opposite character than J.J. It's like she's trying to find the furthest thing from him. This guy has a lot of integrity. He's one of maybe a handful of characters in this movie that have some integrity. Yes. He may be the only one. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of the secretary at the mm. beginning. She seems to be a... Sally. Yes, Sally. Sydney Falco's secretary, Sally. Yeah. She seems to kind of be the conscience of the office, not that she, she does. doesn't get shot down she, by Sydney yes. Falco. She's constantly. also very unhappy. Yes. She looks miserable all the time. She's played by Jeff Donnell, actually a, a female. Sounds male, but is a female. Susan Harrison is interesting because this was her first feature film ever. She had done a couple little TV programs. She had really done nothing. And she got this really important role. And she, she does a really fantastic job. And then she only made one other feature film after this, Key Witness, and never made another feature film. Which is so surprising to me because I think she really makes a mark in this movie. She's wonderful. It, it, maybe it had something to do with so very few people saw it at that time. Well, she actually wound up retiring. She did, again, a little bit more TV, but she ended up retiring to focus on her family. So I think she just wanted to leave the business. Martin Milner, that plays Steve Dallas, actually, some people may remember him. He was the oldest son in Life with Father. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, William Powell. Um, so he did several other films, but that's just what jumped out at me. He did that when he was obviously much younger. But everybody in this film, I think, does a really nice job. It's really well acted. So I guess a little bit more about the plot. Sydney's running around trying to break up this relationship, which, of course, Steve and Susan don't want to be broken up, so it's not working very well. And Burt Lancaster, J.J. Hunsinger, is refusing to acknowledge him and giving him the cold shoulder because he's not doing this. And he's then forced to do a bunch of really morally corrupt things to try to get back in jj's good graces and to try to break up susan and steve 
Yeah, the thing about this task that he's doing is not not only is it terrible to begin with, but it has to be done in a very complicated way because J.J. doesn't want it coming back to him in any way, shape, or form. And so any plan that Sydney comes up with is very convoluted and involves bringing in a lot of other people, other publicists. Yeah, and he is a clever person, and he devises this very clever scheme. Unfortunately, it's not for the best, but... It does come out, and they plant this article about Steve, and he gets in a lot of trouble, and his name gets smeared, and they do manage to sort of break them up, and we really can't go much further than that because... We'll ruin yeah, the power it's of that amazing yes. ending, and we will not do that. For yeah, you. You it's something it. you need to see, but I just think the whole film is a mood, is a vibe, as they say these days. You just get this sense that it's just New York, and almost the entire film is at night. And I think that's deliberate because it's dark, seedy. You see a lot of neon lights. I think that's purposely done to sort of represent an artificialness. Yes, Yes, and also some real locations. The 21 Club is is featured in the film, and it's all around Broadway and Times Square. And the jazzy score and and the sort of frantic pace and this and that, you just get this real sense of mm, anxiety, seediness, darkness. It's It's even a little bit feverish. Yeah, Yeah, feverish. Yeah, that's a good word. I would say that, certainly. So, And all the characters are just caught up in this web of corruption, Yes, and it's not just outside forces that are working on them. You know that in some ways they can potentially be the source of their own destruction. The character flaws and their traits are, they could potentially get themselves into trouble. But I do think in this particular film, almost every character is sort of trapped in a way. They're trapped by their lifestyle or whatever they're doing. That's not to say that it's not a good film to watch. We're making it sound like a real downer. <laughs> it is a downer, but it's yeah. the best kind of downer. Yeah. And the cinematography, speaking of that feeling of trapped, when you're watching this film, you feel that same, the way that, yes, you feel the claustrophobia. And there were times in the film where I felt like maybe I was sitting at that bar, mm-hmm. maybe overhearing this conversation because of the way that the, the tight framing of the shots. Yeah, and sometimes I notice he kind of moves the camera around, almost makes you feel like you're a person watching. You're walking along with them, or it's not a camera, but it's your eyes going with them around. Yes. It's beautifully done. The cinematography is just beautifully done. I cannot say how much I love the cinematography in this particular movie and how disappointed I am that nobody nominated him. And I realize he just won, I think the year before he just won. So, I mean, maybe that's another reason why. And again, like I said, because the film did so terrible at the box office, maybe that's why I didn't get any nominations. Maybe the Academy hated Burt Lancaster. I well, his, history made it right, though, because we are still talking mm-hmm. about the cinematography of this film, and I didn't look at the other nominees. I'm sure they were good. Well, Jack Hildyard Well, you did won. mention yeah, Jack Hildyard um, Okay, I have them right here, Deanne. So, the magic of podcasts. An Affair to Remember. Okay. A funny Face. Yes. A Peyton Place. Okay. And Sayonara. And Bridge on the River Kwai. I'm sorry. I, I'm not an expert. I'm not either, but I don't believe that any of those films were as better cinematography in my opinion than this film I would agree with you with the qualification that I haven't seen Sayonara so I cannot comment on Sayonara I have seen Sayonara but yeah so a real shame that he didn't get the nomination but 
if you really desperately need a reason to watch this film, you can even just watch it for the cinematography. You can just watch it for the dialogue. You can watch it for the, the beautiful jazzy score. If you like jazz, you're going to love this score. You can watch it for the great performances of Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster, who really does an exceptional job, especially being very creepy with his sister. It, it's flawless. Yeah, it's an excellent film. Kirk and I like to do a rating, a star rating out of five, five being the greatest film ever. So I can't give it that. I would give this film four stars. I really, really like it. All objectivity goes out the window for me <laughs> with this film. It's five stars all the way wow. for me. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, hey. I yeah. love noir. I love tightly written dialogue. Mm. I love the particular style of cinematography. Yep. I love black and white. It's just, it's hitting all of my check boxes. Yeah, it really is. Every aspect of the production, the music, the cinematography, the acting, the, the screenplay, it's all almost perfection. I mean, I can't give it five stars because there's a film that I think is better, but four stars is very high for me. I probably have a lot to, here's my, my, all of them five stars. (laughs) Disclosure, I probably have a lot of five star movies. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt if you make a movie, (laughs) generally. Do you have anything else you want to say specifically about this film, since it is such a favorite of yours and you, you love it? Well, one thing I would mention is just how influential it's been. It's something that does pop up from time to time, even now. Before I saw Sweet Smell of Success, I saw the movie Diner from 1982. And there's a character in Diner who loves this movie and just spouts off the dialogue constantly all through the film. Part of the reason why I got intrigued with this movie, also it's a classic film, and so I had to rush to see it. This is one I, I hadn't seen. So it pops up in Diner. Also, same director, Barry Levinson, in Rain Man. Uh, I just rewatched mm-hmm. Rain Man recently, and at one point they're watching television, and this film is on the screen. Oh, really? I don't know. I've seen Rain Man. I never noticed. It's there. Oh, it wow. is there. Wow. Um, so Barry Levinson, a couple nods there in, in two of his films to this movie. But I feel like when people talk about great noirs how often is the sweet smell of success mentioned I feel like never no and I think that's a shame because I think people always say oh double indemnity out of the past and these are all really great noirs but why is it not mentioned with the other great noirs that's a very good question again I think it comes back to the bad showing at the box office people didn't like this film at the time obviously in the years have gone by this has become much more critically acclaimed people realize the real value of this but at the time like wow this just didn't do well it went over like a lead balloon could have also been very ahead of its time too yeah i think sometimes when movies are really kind of on the cutting edge they don't do well certainly at the box office maybe even critically that's why I like to go back every few years, and if I saw something I absolutely hated, watch it again, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to see if that's what's going on. Yeah, and if you haven't seen this movie, The Sweet Smell of Success from 1957, go out and get it. Actually, I streamed it online. It was on Pluto for free. I could stream it. I don't know if everybody has Pluto or 
I, I have Comcast, my cable, and it was on for free. I was able to see this film for free. You can also uh, always go to your local library, pick up a copy. If they don't have it there, you can do a request to go to other libraries in the system to see if they have it there. And you can even do an interlibrary loan, which means they can look at every library in the United States and they can ship it over to you. So this film is very easy to find. I highly recommend seeing this see this film and if you've seen it before see it again yes you won't regret it like I said it's one of those films that sticks with you you don't turn it off and you just go and do the dishes and you're just thinking about something else you're still thinking about this film certainly well is there anything else you want to say about this film Deanne I think we've covered it pretty well okay well I have to thank you so much again for covering for Kirk and filling in for him and I think you did a really great job we, of course, miss Kirk, and he will be back for next podcast, but we really appreciate you coming and talking to us about this wonderful film. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, folks, we will see you next time when we journey through time to our next film in Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk's classic film review. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Silver Screen Time Machine. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Intro music composed by Heidi Engel. Outro music composed by Maximus Monk. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick and Kirk Kolkowski. Recorded at PCTV Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.